Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be here with you on God's Sabbath. I don't have any jokes this afternoon because I want to address a rather serious subject. You know, it's good that we remind ourselves from time to time that <clears throat> why we are here. And Mr. Armstrong used to ask every year at the feast, why are we here? But we're also here on the Sabbath, on God's Sabbath, for a very special reason. You know, God established, we learn in Genesis chapter 2, the first couple of verses, He established the Sabbath when He created human beings. He established it when He created human beings. And He sanctified it. That word sanctify means it's set apart for a special purpose. It's set apart for a very special use. And we're shown in the scriptures that God rested on the Sabbath. He just didn't curl up in a corner and go to sleep. He rested, looked back over what he had made. The Sabbath is a time to reflect on God, on his plan and purpose for mankind. It's a time to worship God, to thank him for his plan, for his purpose, for his truth for his love, for his laws, for his mercy, for his justice, his sense of righteousness. It's a time to thank him for your calling, for opening your mind to understand the plan and the purpose of God. In Exodus chapter 20, we're commanded to remember the Sabbath day, to remember it, think about it, its purpose why we're here, and to keep it holy, to keep using it for God's purpose, not just for our own purpose. The Sabbath is a time to step back from our routine. Many of us work here at headquarters. Many of you, uh, other people, many, many others of you work at other jobs. And it's very easy during the week to get caught up in this routine where we're just going and going and going. But God says, take time on the Sabbath to step back. And get things in perspective. You know, why am I here? Where am I going? What's the purpose of human life? It's a time to come out of this world, literally come away from the world, turn the television off, and focus on God and his plan and his purpose and the role that we can play in that plan. It's a time to refocus our priorities. To ask yourself, what is the most important thing in your life? Where do you spend most of your time? Where are most of your concerns? But to reorient and refocus our priorities, to readjust our perspectives. You know, this world is very powerful. We've got inputs from television, inputs from the Internet, inputs from our friends. And those inputs will pull us off course if we're not focused where we need to be. So it's a time to readjust our focus. It's a time to get back on course if we've been pulled off a little bit. You know, brethren, we are living in very significant times, very sobering times, from a both a historical and a prophetic perspective. There are many people who realize the times in which we're living are very different. For those of you who grew up in the 50s, maybe, or the 60s, Things were very different at that time than what they are today. The world I grew up in, 
very different from the age and the time in which your children are growing up in. We're living through what I think people are going to realize down the road, one of the major turning points in history. And we're alive during this period of time. You know, there have been numerous books written and articles written over the last several years, actually the last several decades, talking about what's happening today and how it is so different. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal in May of this year entitled, The Sun is Setting on British Power, From Ruling the Waves to Waving Goodbye. But here's a major news source talking about the sun is setting on British power. I've got a book in my library entitled The Abolition of Britain. How the Britain that many people grew up in is being destroyed today, abolished, done away with. There was an article in the U.S. News and World Report December of last year, an editorial entitled Watching America's Decline and Fall. Watching America's Decline and Fall. I've got a couple of books up here that talk about the same thing. One, a Protestant uh, prophecy fellow, but is entitled The Late Great United States. This is the time in which we're living. A book written about 20 years ago by a Protestant theologian, Carl Henry, is entitled The Twilight of a Great civilization. He's talking about America and Britain and other Western nations turning back to pagan ways, doing things that the pagans used to do. But this is the time in which we're living. And on the Sabbath, it's not a bad thing to spend a little bit of time asking ourselves questions. Why am I here? Am I focused in the right direction? Where am I going with my life? Where is the world going? You know, in the light of what's happening today, God gave his church a mission, a focus, to tell America, to tell the world why that all of this that we're seeing today was predicted a long time ago in the pages of the Bible. This shouldn't be a surprise to people today. Part of our job is to explain why these things are happening, why we're seeing the decline of the West, why we're seeing the demise of the Israelite nations, God's chosen people. Why is it happening? Part of our job is to explain that when nations turn away from God, there will be serious consequences and that God will bring those consequences on nations that turn away from him. Part of our job, too, is to to basically proclaim the good news of a coming kingdom of God. And it's not all bad news. Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to set up a government on this earth that you and I can be part of if we keep our focus, if we're focusing in the right direction. Part of the job, too, of the church is to prepare a people. You read about that in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. To prepare a people prepared for the Lord when he returns. To prepare a people to reign with Jesus Christ. To prepare a people to teach God's way of life in the coming kingdom of God. 
You and I have been called to become teachers to be able to say this is the way. This is the direction. This is where we need to go. This is how you can solve your problems. Brethren, this is why we're here today, to learn how to do these things, to show the world the way out of the morass that we're into today. For the sermon today, I want to focus on a subject that is, according to the Bible, one of the most fundamentally important aspects of the plan of God and his plan for mankind. But this subject I'm going to talk about is also the subject of Satan's attacks, multiple attacks, to thwart the plan of God, to disrupt the plan of God, to knock you off course, to knock me off course. And it's something that we need to understand because Satan's attacks are bringing the problems on us that we're experiencing today. And we need to understand why these things are happening, what is happening around us, and how to deal with this power and these forces that are all around us today, and why it's so important to recapture true values in the subject area that I want to talk about this afternoon. What I want to talk about is the importance of the family. The importance of the family. Why it's so important, what's happening to it today. You know, sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. If we've got our own personal problems, we're focused on those. But there's a much bigger picture that we need to understand what is happening, why it's happening, and how this whole process can be reversed, and how it's going to be reversed. What I'd like to look at first this afternoon is what is happening to the family I think many of us realize things are difficult, a lot of problems. You know, Mr. League was talking about bearing with each other as husbands and wives. Uh, In many cases, two bears going after each other within the family. And the cubs scatter, and there's problems as a result. But do we realize what is actually happening today? And this goes back to starting in about the 1960s when things really began to change in this country, came across a book recently entitled The War Against the Family. The War Against the Family, written by William Gardner, and it's spelled a little bit differently, G-A-I-R-D-N-E-R. The War Against the Family, subtitled as a parent speaks out against political, economic, and social policies that threaten all of us. And he just lists a whole series of things that we'll talk about for just a little bit of what is happening today and the impact of economic policies, the impact of legislation, the impact of various practices on the family. And how these things are destroying the family today in the world in which we live. He talks about the miseducation of children in school where you're telling them that homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle and that you can redefine the family, and there's no definite definitions that we have to follow for the family. These are things that are promoted in schools today. It talks about the influence of feminists since the 1960s primarily, the uh, impact of abortion and euthanasia on the family, various laws that are being passed today, and the impact on the family, and even the effect of courts, 
I'm going to check this with Dr. Germano later, but one place I was reading that about 50% of the litigation in courts has to do with divorce and custody issues. In other words, battles over family issues. Nearly half of the litigation. And in many churches today are promoting practices that are literally destructive to the family. But this is the world that we live in. This is the world that we live in. Another book was entitled Taken into Custody. Taken into Custody, the War Against Fatherhood, Marriage, and the Family by Stephen Baskerville, who's a professor and works in this area of family relations. He talks about judicial kidnapping, where the courts get involved and take children away from parents because there's a different philosophy, a different philosophy. They don't like the way you correct your children. They don't like what you're teaching your children. Germany has been putting parents in jail who try and homeschool their children because the state wants control of those things. This is just not happening in the United States. It's happening in the Western world, in so-called Christian countries. Another book entitled The Marketing of Evil. It was written by an American, actually an immigrant to this country. Subtitle is How Radicals and Elites and Pseudo-Experts Are Corrupting Our Value System. And he talks about the family meltdown, how the family is literally experience a campaign to destroy marriage. So these are things that you read about today. These are things that are happening around us. But again, we get wrapped up in our routine, and we're focused on ourselves, sometimes missing out on this big picture of what is actually taking place in the Western world. Uh, One of the quotes in this book, The Marketing of Evil, here we go, written by Richard Kupelian, He quotes another book entitled The Case for Marriage, in which the authors say perhaps for the first time in history, marriage as an ideal is under sustained and successfully uh, a successful series of attacks. In other words, in the past, you know, people have kind of made fun of marriage or ignored marriage. But what he's saying is perhaps for the first time in history on a grand scale, that marriage is under attack. Many of these books talk about some of the things that are, some of the attacks that are leveled against marriage and the family. And I just want to list several of these things to realize what is actually happening in society. It talks about the influence of the feminists. These were people back in the early 60s and are still active today. What's interesting is many of the leaders in the feminist movement were abused by their fathers, by their brothers, by uncles. And they have this animosity against men, a rage against men. And they were talking about in some of these books, marriage is a type of slavery. It's a type of slavery that fosters dependency among women and limits their capacity to grow and expand. One of the books that came out in the 60s was this book entitled The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. She graduated from one of the uh, more exclusive uh, girls' schools up in the Northeast. 
And she talks about uh, a number of things, about uh, women's, this idea that a woman's goal is to be a mother, a wife, and a homemaker is a lie. It's a lie. And she's very uh, demonstrative about that. And she talks about more recently, she says, as feminists, we must fight any attempt to put women back in the home and have babies and not compete for jobs. We've got to fight this. This is wrong. It needs to change. And in some of these other things that are talked about, I want to quote one other thing from this lady. Because she wrote this book, and she makes some very, very interesting statements at the beginning of the book. She says, somehow as I was writing the book, the book took me over, obsessed me, and wanted to write itself. And I took my papers home and wrote on a dining room table. She said, I have never experienced anything as powerful, truly mystical, as the forces that seemed to take me over when I was writing The Feminine Mystique. You know, the world doesn't understand, but there are powers that will influence us if we're not aware of where those powers are coming from. She also makes the statement, I felt like I was writing a book that was uh, going to shake the foundations of the universe. I'm writing a book that is going to shake the foundations of the universe. Who would want to shake the foundations of the universe? Especially the universe that God made. You will see this in just a little bit. Some other statements by radical feminists. This is just one of the factors focused on the family, to destroy the family. Some of these radical feminists have made statements like, we must abolish uh, and re uh, reform marriage. Another one said, being a housewife should become an illegal profession. Now, these are people that are angry. Now, if they've been abused in one way or another, you can understand the source of their anger. But they don't understand where it's going. Another person made the statement, a radical feminist, we can't destroy the inequities between men and women until we destroy marriage. Things have got to change. We want to change the world. You know, what many people don't realize today, and I think what many feminists may realize, is that these ideas to destroy marriage predate the 1960s. Lenin, in 1917, when he went back to Russia, one of his goals was, was to destroy the Russian family. Destroy the Russian family. And he and Joseph Stalin realized to control people, you've got to control the family. And they instituted easy divorce. Get rid of them as quickly as you want. They promoted immorality within marriage. In other words, it would help break it up. They promoted abortion. They promoted homosexuality. They didn't do this in Russia, but they are not opposed to seeing it happen in America, putting women in the military, because they knew what the consequences would be. 
You know, these same ideas became part of the uh, agenda of communists and socialists that had an influence in this country in the 30s and in the 40s. It's interesting that Ronald Reagan made part of his claim to fame fighting the communist influence in the Actors Guild in Hollywood. And he was the one that kept promoting this idea about an evil empire. I think he understood perhaps more than we did because he was very close to it. Why this empire was evil because of what it was doing. So this rise of feminists in ideas of of putting down marriage and putting down the family and getting women out of the home and into the job market and away from the family. These were ideas to destroy the family, to destroy the family. They've been promoted and used successfully by people who have done this. But this is just one of the factors. No-fault divorce is another one. Again, Ronald Reagan, of all people, signed a bill in California for no-fault divorces. This came on the heels of his divorce. It was a very apparently very acrimonious situation, and he wanted to make it easier for people, less acrimonious. And his, book wrote, or his son wrote a book a number of years later and said, that decision was one of the worst decisions my dad ever made. He came to acknowledge that. When he saw divorces just explode and began to realize the consequences of that decision. And he said, this was one of the worst decisions I ever made, but he made it for good reasons. But the consequences were tremendous. As one author said, the no fault divorce laws that began in California and spread around the country launched a massive social experiment that nobody knew what the outcome was going to be. The book came out several years ago entitled The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, written by Judith Judith Wallerstein. What it is, it's a 25-year study of children whose parents divorced and what happened to those children. And some of these figures are just, they blow you away. The two to three children of divorce experience two to three more times. Uh, they have a two to three more times a, a need for psychological help. Two to three more times than kids growing up in an intact family. They have earlier sexual activity, earlier experience with smoking and alcohol and drugs. More of them wind up in mental health clinics and hospitals. In fact, one figure I saw was 80% of the kids that are in mental health clinics come from single-parent homes because they're dealing with a lot of anger. They're dealing with a lot of frustration. They're dealing with a lot of loss of love. Children from, of divorce often wind up with more psychological problems as adults than children coming from intact homes. And especially where the dad is not there, they're more likely to drop out of school, more likely to wind up in jail, and more likely to live below the poverty line. These are some of the consequences. These are some of the consequences of this easy divorce. Just get rid of somebody because you don't want to live with them anymore. You know, one of the things we're seeing 
in the UK. They had these riots very recently. where these young kids were just rampaging over the streets, burning things, stealing things. One of the articles that was written about it made the statement, we are seeing on the streets of Britain, what we're seeing on the streets of Britain right now is something that we might start seeing here in America. The cause was not injustice. It was greed, selfishness, a respect and even lust for violence, and a lack of moral grounding. Kids, they just have not been taught right from wrong. I want to read one little passage from this book, When Nations Die, by Jim Nelson Black. It was written about 15 years ago. He was talking about what's happening, what we're seeing today in the generation that has grown up with uh, moms and dads working outside the home, or at least moms working outside the home, dads not paying attention, a lack of moral grounding. He says, today we have a generation of children growing up unbonded. This is a relatively new form of disturbance, but it describes a phenomenon in which kids grow up with no sense of relationship or responsibility to other persons. They've never built a relationship with mom or dad. They've never built a relationship with other people. They have no sense of responsibility. These are things that should be taught and can be taught at home. You clean up your room. You, we got to work at this together. You just do whatever you want. They have no allegiance to parents because their parents weren't there in many cases. No loyalty to friends. They're out to get whatever they want. No concept of right or wrong. You want to steal it? You do it. You want to burn it? You do it. You want to smash up a car? You do it. This lack of responsibility. And they become social misfits and ultimately a menace to society, which is what we're seeing in Britain. And a number of people are saying we're liable to see the same thing in this country in the months ahead. I was reading something this past week that this coming next May, They're going to have, I believe it is, a NATO conference in Chicago and a G8 or a G20 conference in Chicago. Last time they had this in the United States up in Seattle, they had 40,000 protesters showed up to Seattle. And they had riots up there that cost millions of dollars. And what I was reading was there's a group of people that actually have links to the current administration are planning for demonstrations by next May, and they're holding training sessions around the country to get ready for this. So the articles that are talking about a generation growing up without any sense of responsibility, without any sense of right or wrong, and a sense of violence, said, we're liable to see these things in the years just ahead because these things are not being promoted in families today. Again, the title of the book was When Nations Die. When nations are going down the tubes, these are the things that we see. Very sobering. So we talked about feminist influence. We talked about the no-fault divorce and the impact on the family. This thing of abortion. We've killed probably between 40 and 45 million babies in this country. 
What does that do to the minds of parents that kill their own children? But when you put this together, sometimes we talk about this in isolation. But because of divorces, there are a million kids every year affected by that. And they estimate we've got 50 million children of divorce in America today. And in 40 to 50 million abortions. In a country that God says, you're my chosen people. I called you to be a light to the world. And this is the light that the world sees. And we're promoting these things into other nations. Another attack on the family is euthanasia. Letting people put themselves to death or or helping a person die. As one person said, it's killing with kindness. But these are elderly people, grandmothers, grandfathers. This is what we're doing today. There are anti-family laws. San Francisco just passed a law, or it wants to pass a law, that if you spank your children and you're caught, you could be fined. Contrary to what God says. God doesn't talk about beating your children. He talks about correction and discipline is necessary if you love your child. But we're moving into an era when if you try and do things God's way, you're going to be punished. You're going to be fined. You could be thrown in jail. If you teach your children that homosexuality is wrong, you can be accused of fostering hate. I mean, this is the world we're living in. And the question is, how much longer is God going to let something like that go? But the point I want to make this afternoon, brethren, there is an individual, Satan the devil, that is out to destroy the plan of God, to thwart the plan of God, disrupt the plan of God. And this is how he operates through these things. There are tax laws, especially in Sweden. If you're married, your taxes are higher than if you're single. Or they're higher if you're in a homosexual relationship. It's the highest for people that are married. So people don't get married. More than half the babies born in Sweden are born out of wedlock. And suicide among young people is one of the highest in the world. So they have no connections. They have no purpose. No understanding of what life is all about. Came across a very interesting book. Entitled, The Character of Nations. The Character of Nations. He's talking about how important character is and the impact of negative character on a nation's future. And it talks about in the book, we've been fighting cultural wars. Whose values are going to prevail? Biblical values or secular values? And these secular values today have led to a decrease in in the the strength of the family, the health of the family. As one of the chapters was entitled, uh, What Are We Doing to Ourselves? What are we doing to ourselves by doing these things, promoting homosexuality, abortion, no-fault divorce, various things like that? One of the uh, articles we published in January of this year, The Handwriting is on the Wall, We quoted two different authors looking at America. First one was Thomas Jefferson writing in the 1700s. 
He says, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. God said in Deuteronomy, if you obey me, you're going to be blessed. If you turn away from me, there will be consequences, serious consequences. Today, we're turning away from God in a big way. Now, not everybody, but when you get a nation promoting homosexuality, same-sex marriages, abortion, euthanasia, you're gradually proving these things, making it a crime to pray in high school or pray in class in a school and calling teaching morality hate crimes. How long is God going to let something like that go? We also quoted the Roman philosopher Seneca in the first century A.D. He made a statement, very sobering today. He says, the time will come. He's talking about ancient Rome. But he says, the time will come when our successors will wonder, how could we ever have been so ignorant of things so obvious? 25-year study on the impact of divorce and how that is, has got incredible social and economic consequences. I think it was one other thing I wanted to read. This came from an editorial or a commentary on the Internet uh, that one person wrote. He's talking about the, the impact of these changes on America. It says, the breakdown of the family, two generations into the sexual revolution, you're back in the 60s, free love, free speech, free this, free that. Uh, you make love, not war, as John Lennon was singing about. There's two generations into that, which has brought us to the point of sexual anarchy, everybody doing whatever they want. Two generations into the no-fault divorce. The f- traditional family unit is, increasing, is an increasingly threatened species and at high economic cost to our society. Author Frank Turek points out that kids raised by their moms and dads in an intact family are seven times likely, less likely to live in poverty. Seven times less likely. Six times less likely to commit suicide. Less than half as likely to commit a crime. Less than half as likely to become pregnant out of wedlock develop better academically and socially. They're healthier physically and emotionally when they reach adulthood. You had better believe the breakdown of the family has massive economic implications and massive social implications. But, brother, these are things that are focused on destroying the family today. This is the world we're living in. The question is, how much longer will God let something like this go on? Now, what most of these authors do not understand, and they don't address, is why is this happening today, especially in America? Why is it happening in Britain today? When you understand the identity of America and Britain, that they're Israelite countries, they are part of God's chosen people, where God gave us his laws, gave us a perspective that we've lost today. Your sermonette speaker was talking about what we have lost, what we've let go of. Why is this happening today? Why is it happening in America? Just come back to perspectives here. God has a plan. He has a purpose for human beings to become part of his family. 
to become part of his family. And Satan is out to disrupt that. He doesn't want you and he doesn't want me to become part of God's family. He doesn't want the family to work. It was Betty Friedan who wrote this book, uh, The Feminine Mistake. Others have called it The Feminine Mistake. But she said, uh, no, it wasn't her. It was somebody else. It was, I think, Jermaine Greer, another feminist leader. She said, one of the reasons I never married was because I never saw a marriage that I wanted to be part of or that I wanted to emulate. See, they've got reasons for their feelings. They've seen parents fighting. They don't want to be part of that. They've seen marriages fail. They don't want to be part of that. They've been in families where there's a lot of strife. They don't want to be part of that. So they've got their reasons. But Satan wants to focus on those things. He wants to disrupt the family and thwart the plan of God. But God has a plan he's working out. Satan's name means an adversary. He's against what God wants to do. And we're living in a world that we're going to see Satan's influence become even more uh, uh, widespread. A couple of scriptures you might want to think about. Maybe jot these down and read them a little bit later. In Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Talks about Satan leading a rebellion against God. He says, I'm going to get up there and knock you off your throne, and I'm going to be in charge. He led a rebellion against God. In Genesis chapter 6, in the pre-flood world, you read about it a little bit. That world was corrupted and filled with violence. And we're living in a world that is becoming increasingly corrupt and increasingly violent because Satan's influence is growing and is spreading. See, the Bible gives us perspective. You know, Satan, the devil, is behind many of these attacks on the family and attacks on marriage to do anything he can do to weaken those things. In Genesis chapter 11, after the flood, they wanted to build a tower and make a name for themselves, and they were going to do things their way. You know, this is how Satan operates. This is how he functions. And it appears that as we get closer to the end of the age, he's going to push another rebellion and try and take the world literally away from God. You know, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, it talks about two things are going to happen before Christ returns. There's going to be a great falling away. And if you look up the different translations of that, some of them say a great rebellion against God. And a man of sin is going to be revealed. It's nothing new. He led a rebellion against God with the angels, took a third of them. It's hard to imagine. How could Satan influence one third of the angels against God? But he did it. And then he led the pre-flood world off. They became totally corrupt, filled with violence. And then after the flood, he was back at it again. And the implication is, as we get towards the end of the age, he's going to go at it again. All stops removed. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan is the god of this world. He's the one that's guiding things, influencing things. This is the world in which we live in. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, let's turn to that one. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. 
See, the Bible provides us with insight and with an understanding and with a perspective that the world doesn't have for the most part. I think many Christians, so-called Christians in the world, believe that there's a Satan, but many Christians don't believe that Satan is real. It's just kind of a concept. But the Bible gives us some very important things to notice. In verse 10, it talks about being willing to forgive so that Satan doesn't get after people. Be willing to forgive people that make mistakes, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan has devices and tactics that he uses. Abortion, euthanasia, no-fault divorce, feminist ideas, you know, down-on-marriage type of things, laws that can be passed. In Ephesians chapter 2, another scripture, you have to put all these together to kind of get the big picture. Again, this was talked about in the sermonette, some of the factors, some of the aspects of Satan. But in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. In other words, an individual that can broadcast or influence attitudes and thoughts. I've used this example with one of our sons, and actually both of the boys when they were growing up. One Friday evening, we're downstairs in the lower part of the house. We're walking up the stairs, and this one boy turned around, and they were following each other. And the one boy turned around and just kicked the other one in the stomach because he happened to be two steps lower. And I grabbed his shoulder, and I said, Why did you do that? Why did you kick your brother? He said, I I just felt like it. (laughs) I had this, this thought. And I I just kicked him. I said, who do you think put a thought like that in your mind? Would God put a thought like that in your mind to kick your brother in the stomach? No. I said, well, who do you think would put a thought in your mind to kick your brother? He said, I think I know. (laughs) I said, one of the lessons of life is to recognize where certain thoughts come from. Now, there may be thoughts like that. It may be thoughts to, you know, watch pornography on television or maybe thoughts to steal something when nobody's looking or maybe commit adultery or whatever. Well, I, I just thought, and it seemed right. But, you know, we're told in the Scripture, in Proverbs, twice, Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25, there is a way that seems right to a person. Well, it seemed right. It seemed okay. But the scriptures say the outcome is going to be serious. The way, the outcome is going to be death. I mean, you're you're going down a wrong path. Well, the guy was so handsome and the girl was so pretty and it just seemed like the logical thing to do. No, you've got to put it in a bigger perspective, not just you know, influenced by your emotions. Proverbs 14, excuse me, 11.14, Proverbs 11.14 and Proverbs 15.22 says there's safety in a multitude of counsel. There's safety in a multitude of counsel. You get counsel from others that are not involved as much as you are in a situation. Is this a good idea? Is it, well, no, we don't think it's a good idea. Well, yeah, but I think it is. It says a fool ignores advice. A wise person listens and draws out that advice. 
you know, a number of years ago when I went to Ambassador College, I had a big decision to make, and I went to see Dr. Meredith. I said, what is your advice on this particular situation? He spent some time, looked into it, and he came back and said, I don't encourage you. I would encourage you not to do that. And I had a decision to make. Do I listen or do I ignore it? My feelings were saying ignore it. <laughs> but I listened. wasn't the easiest decision to make. But I look back on it now, it was, I'm very thankful for the advice. But it was not what I wanted to hear at that time. See, what God tells us to do is that there's safety in a multitude of counsel. Get advice when you have big decisions to make. And then listen carefully to that advice. But this is how Satan operates. He puts thoughts in our mind. He will try and influence us. You know, the lady that wrote this book and said, the book obsessed me. (laughs) It was like something took me over. I was shaking the foundations of the universe. This is what Satan wants to do. He wants to totally restructure our society away from God. Again, there will be people that will be, well, I was abused by my mom or dad or whatever, and people didn't treat me right, especially men, and I'm just really upset about all this. But we've got to get a bigger picture. Not everybody has been treated that way. Again, we're living in Satan's world, not God's world. But we're here to prepare for the coming kingdom of God and show people there is a better way. There is a way that works. There's a way that brings benefits. See, what the world doesn't understand, let's look at a couple of other scriptures here quickly. In Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, Paul makes some observations here about the world in which we live. Again, many people don't really understand today because they don't really believe the Bible. For they're not taught what is in the Bible. <clears throat> when you understand that Satan is a liar, he's a deceiver, he's deceived the whole world. This is how he operates. He's an antagonist. He wants to disrupt the plan of God. And that he influences people and attitudes. Ephesians chapter 6 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil that you can stand up against these attacks that Satan launches. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh or blood, or and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age. And then he talks about putting on the whole armor of God, taking the shield of faith uh, to quench these fiery darts, these attacks that come at us. And the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. So he's talking about protect yourself, protect your mind. And when you link this with 1 Peter 5, 8, 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter is giving similar advice to the church. He says, be sober, 1 Peter 5, 8, be serious, be alert, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, Satan is an adversary, 
walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Individuals, nations, churches, communities. But then he says, resist him. You can't resist him if you don't recognize who he is and how he operates. We've got to recognize where these thoughts come from, where these ideas come from that you read in various books. This lady that wrote the book doesn't recognize where those ideas were coming from to shake the foundations of the universe by destroying the family and getting mothers out of the home and away from children, especially when they're needed. But when you take the advice that Paul and Peter are giving here, that we wrestle against wicked spirits in high places that want to destroy and thwart the plan of God, and that we're dealing with an adversary that wants to destroy the family and destroy marriage, which play a very important part in God's plan. We need to recognize these things. This is why it's happening today. God told the ancient Israelites, you turn away from me. You ignore my laws. You despise my statutes. Where God said homosexuality is an abomination. Men and women, or excuse me, two men and two women shouldn't have relationships together. These are wrong. They're blasphemous. They're evil. And the consequences are terrible. And God is a God of love. He doesn't want these things to happen. But he's going to allow it because he wants us to build character and learn lessons. These are the perspectives we need to understand. These no-fault divorce laws are not a blessing. They're a curse whenever you look at the consequences long-term and the impact of these decisions on children, regardless of the ages. There will be and there are consequences. God says, I don't want that to happen. So this is why this is happening. Satan wants to destroy the nations of Israel. He wants to destroy the chosen people of God that God called to be lights to the world, wanted to be lights to the world, blessed so that we could be lights to the world. Satan's out to disrupt that whole thing and destroy our nation. The communists and socialist planners back in the 30s and their trained people are still around today. They want to destroy this nation. They want to bring it down. And it looks like the people in power today are playing right into those hands for maybe good reasons in their mind. Or we're going to improve things. We're going to get rid of this evil capitalistic system that gives bankers hundreds of thousands of dollars for a salary. And other people are living in poverty. See, that will resonate with people. Got to get rid of that system. I was in Washington, D.C. back in the 60s. Whenever they're having a bunch of demonstrations, I went back to a science conference, and I was there as a, a representative for the Plain Truth magazine. There's one young guy who's up there shooting off his mouth in one of the press conferences. We're going to bring this nation down. We're going to bring it to its knees. We're going to destroy it. And I went up to him afterwards, and I said, what's your plan once you bring the nation down? He just looked at me like, get out of here. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> he didn't have a plan. He didn't have a plan. His plan was destroy. There was a book came out written by one of the guys in that 60s generation called The Destructive Generation. He said, we're out to destroy. 
these kids running down the street in London over there in Manchester and some of those places. They were laughing as they were tossing burning things into buildings. I grew up around Youngstown, Ohio. I lived out in a smaller town about 10 miles away. We used to get down to the YMCA on uh, the weekends. I remember playing basketball with this kid that grew up in the inner city. He was a good basketball player, and I liked to have him on my team, and we liked to be on each other's team. But we were taking a shower one night, and he said, What do you guys do out there for fun? I said, We shoot baskets. <laughs> we do stuff like that. He said, Ah, I said, We get bicycle chains. And we have a rumble. In other words, we have a gang fight. And I thought, Well, wow. <laughs> he said, It's fun. You swing that thing, and man, slices somebody in the face. Well, it's fun. I thought, man, that's a different definition. But see, our values are different, different places. And the values that we're taught, we grow up learning either at home or from our peers. And as this guy said, we're seeing a generation grow up today that have no sense of relationship to other people, no sense of responsibility. They don't care. They want to do what they want to do and have fun while they're doing it, live hard and die young. Because they don't understand there's a bigger purpose in life. That we've been called to become part of God's family. To literally change the world one of these days. And bring peace to this earth. That's why we're here. To learn how to do that. Okay, how is this all going to change? How is this terrible, evil, hurtful situation going to be turned around? And how can you prepare to rule and teach in the coming kingdom of God? You know, I hope some of these scriptures, let's look very quickly here at just a couple. Revelation 5 and verse 10, we read this a lot. But brethren, this is going to come to pass in the years just ahead of us. This is actually going to happen. When Daniel explained the vision to Nebuchadnezzar, He said, the vision is certain, and it's true, and it's going to come to pass. If we can begin to grasp, these things are going to happen. Jesus Christ is preparing a group of people to literally turn the world right side up. We've got to know what to do when Christ returns. We've got to be prepared to do that. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10 says that God has made us kings and priests, to our God, and we shall reign on this earth. You know, a king is a civil leader. A priest is a religious leader. We're going to be teaching people how to live. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 20 and 21 says, A time is going to come when people will see their teachers. And their teachers are going to say, This is the way. We are going to let ladies go back home and have babies. And their husbands are going to support them and provide a secure environment so that the children can be raised and feel confident and comfortable and safe and be cultivated. There was a book written a number of years ago talked about the hand that rocks the cradle. 
rules the world. That's how important mothers are. You know, marriage is not, and families are not, an illegal profession that need to be squashed and killed and revolutionized. They need to be reasserted and supported and restored. Let's look at several things that we need to do to get ready for what is coming, because it's going to come. Christ is going to return. He's going to need a group of people that are ready to do what needs to be done, that are confident, that are convicted, and that they know what to do, and they can point people in the right direction. I've got seven quick points here. Number one, we've got to understand the truth. We've got to understand what the truth is, as Betty Frieden doesn't understand the truth. Some of these other people don't understand the truth. John 17, 17, John says, Christ said, Thy word is truth. The word of God is true. Your God is the author of the family. He's the one that's given us guidelines. The Bible is true. Paul makes the statement in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine. All Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all there that is profitable. We need to understand that. I think most of you do. That's why you're here. But much of the world doesn't understand. They've been told, oh, this is just a book of stories, just the myths and legends and stuff like that. And, you know, it's not inspired. It's just a book. But that's not the case. We've got to understand what the truth is and where it is. Number two, we need to understand very deeply that God is the author of marriage and the family. We read that in Genesis chapter 2, latter part of that chapter, verse 24. He said a man was to leave his wife and cleave to, or to leave his mother and cleave to his wife. Leave his parents and cleave to his wife. A man and a woman is the definition of marriage. Not two men, not two women, not two ladies and a cat. <laughs> not a guy and a donkey. It's not a marriage. It's a relationship, but it's not a marriage. And it's not a family in a godly sense. And this is not rocket science. This is pretty basic. But when you get away from God, you forget these basic things. You can't redefine what God has made. Very interesting scriptures. Look them up on your own. Isaiah 63, verse 16, where it says, God is a father. See, he draws these analogies. Notice in uh, 2 Corinthians six eighteen, the terminology that Paul uses. 2 Corinthians... Chapter 6 and verse 18. God says, I will be a father to you. Talking about Christians. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. As a father talking to his children. This is a family relationship, a godly family relationship. The third thing we need to understand. Maybe just one other comment there. Some people ask, well, what about uh, in the Old Testament where some of the patriarchs had more than one wife? It's interesting to note where polygamy began. It began with the line of Cain. 
They began with the line of Cain. And these things were picked up then. God allows people to do things, and then we have to pay the consequences. Point number three, God gave specific commandments to protect marriage. We've talked about this for years. One of the commandments is honor your father and mother. Respect them. Honor them. Look up to them. And again, by the same token, the opposite side of the coin is that mothers and fathers need to be respectable. We need to conduct ourselves in ways that our children will look up to us. As this one feminist said, I never saw a marriage I wanted to be part of or that I wanted to imitate. Imitate. Emulate. That's sad. You know, marriage is not easy. It's a challenge. One of the things God wants us to learn in marriage, besides romance, (laughs) is what love means. Love involves forgiveness. Love involves being patient. Love involves being understanding. And these things don't come easy. Well, I never bargained for this. I never realized I'd have to forgive somebody or be patient with somebody, especially when they squeeze the toothpaste tube in the middle, and I like to roll it up from the bottom, you know. These, <laughs> these are big things. But, you know, they become big things. If we don't have a bigger perspective, see, we've got to keep things in perspective. God gave commandments to protect marriage. He didn't want to make divorce easy. He says, unless porneia or unless abuse, you, you, you need to make it work. For your sakes, for your children's sakes, for society's sake. You can't just blow it off. You can read the scriptures on your own. But he gave commandments for marriage. He says, no, do not commit adultery. And by the same token, don't commit fornication. Don't do those things. People grow up in our society today, and if you've had a number of sexual activities, number of partners, man, you're a real woman, or you're a real man. You're really macho. You're really with it. Proverbs says only a fool does those things. Only a fool does those things. That's not thinking about long term. That's not thinking about the consequences. The Bible has a very different set of values. It talks about don't lust after someone else. Yet anything you read about Hollywood will Joe you know, made eyes at Susie and left his wife and went over there and whatever. I mean, this is what Hollywood is, the merry-go-round, marriage-go-round. And you read about it all the time. But people are think they're missing something if they don't do those things. But that's a totally wrong set of values. So God gave commandments to protect marriage. Number four, divorce was not God's intention. It was not God's intention. We read that in Matthew 5, Matthew 19. It says only for porneia or for abuse. And outside of that, if somebody's looks change and you're not attracted to them anymore, that's not a grounds for divorce. Or if they gain weight or lose weight or they start wearing glasses or whatever, those are not grounds for divorce. 
You know, we all have to make adjustments. We all have to make adjustments. God protected marriage with these things. And when you take the protections away, then people just do whatever, and society begins to come apart. Number five, God gave us a series of guidelines, and this is a subject for future sermons. But he gave us a series of guidelines for the family and for marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are to love their wives as an unselfish, outgoing concern. And it does say women are to be subject to their husbands, adapt to, relate to. And again, the husband has to relate to. It's a mutual thing, learning to work together. And that takes time. It's one of the reasons we advise people, encourage people. You know, marry within your race, within your culture, uh, because you're going to have fewer adjustments to make. You marry outside these things, and you've got even bigger adjustments to make. Because you'll look at a situation one way, and then your spouse will look at it a totally different way and wonder what's the matter with you, and you wonder what's the matter with her. <laughs> you know, Abraham said, go back to my own people and get a wife for Isaac. Because our values are going to be the same. I was talking with a fellow just recently that we both went to Ambassador College back in the 60s. But we both grew up in small towns. And we've had a chance to talk with other people that were in our high school graduating classes. And it was interesting, those graduates that are not in a church but came from the same environments that we came from, 50 years later have pretty much the same value system that we had 50 years ago because they were raised with the same set of values. See, these things are important. So God gives guidelines for family and the marriage, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. And these are talking about roles that complement each other. Husbands to lead in the family. And the wife is to be supportive. Doesn't mean she can't have her opinions. But the idea is to work together as a team and appreciate each other and learn to work together that way and create a stable environment, a happy environment you know, for your children. And many points, uh, studies are pointing out that kids that come from a, a well-functioning home are healthier, are happier, they live longer lives, they don't get into divorce near as many times. It's a whole chain of reaction of things when things are done God's way. There are also principles for raising children. Point number six, Proverbs 22, verse six, talks about training up, raising a child in the way that they should go. Teach them the truth. Inculcate a set of values, respect for people, responsibility, and those will benefit children all their lives. Final point number seven is prepare to teach God's way. Prepare to teach God's way. First Peter chapter three verse fifteen talks about growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. How would Jesus Christ do something? How is Christ going to want people taught in the world tomorrow about marriage, about the family, about the roles within the family? We can be preparing to do that now. 2 Timothy 2.15, let's look at that quickly. 2 Timothy 2.15, 
It's a general principle, but think of it in the context that we're talking about this afternoon. Paul says, be diligent to present yourself, talking to Timothy, and this was to be passed on to the churches. Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a worker who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We break this down a little bit. The word diligent means you know, be excited, be eager, study. In other words, study eagerly uh, <clears throat> to present yourself approved unto God. Some of the translations say be tried and tested. In other words, prepare. Let God work with you, mold you. Be able to rightly divide or accurately explain uh, <clears throat> or correctly teach the Word of God. How do these principles apply? How do we put them into practice in our lives? And then a very, I think, inspiring example. You go back and read Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. It says, Ezra was a skilled scribe. You know, you're not born a skilled scribe. <laughs> you become a skilled scribe by studying, by learning the scriptures, understanding them. It says he was a skilled scribe and he prepared his heart, verse 10, to teach God's way whenever he came up from Babylon to Jerusalem with the captives that were returning. He prepared for his job to teach God's way to the captives returning from Babylon. And you go and you read Nehemiah chapter 8. And he said he expounded the scriptures and the people were glad when they understood. They rejoiced. Brethren, you and I are going to have an opportunity to work with Jesus Christ to teach a world that has been deceived and misled God's way of life, the way to happier marriages, the way to happier families. This is your future. This is my future. I wanted to share with you a couple of other things. I've got a handout that hopefully will be here before the end of services. I left it at home. If it's not here by the end of services, we'll have it for you next week. But it's 15 traits of a, ha- of a healthy family. It comes from a book written by Dolores Curran. Uh, 15, as the, the title is Traits of a Healthy Family. And I would encourage you, look at this and then put some scriptures by each one of these traits. talks about healthy families communicate and they listen. One person is not always talking and one person is not always listening. They, they communicate and talk back and forth. They foster conversation at the table. I remember one young fellow we kind of took in and he was part of our family for a little while. He was describing what his family life was like because we got together every Friday night and we ate dinner around a table. My wife would put candles on the table and we would talk. We'd talk about the events of the week. He said, this is different. This is the family that I grew up in, one parent. We just drifted into the kitchen, grabbed what we wanted, went back to our room and sat in front of a television set. He said, We didn't do things like you do them. But he was alone. It was interesting. His mom stopped by our house one time. She said, thank you very much for what you've done for my son. For the way that you've shown him. 
that I wasn't able to do. And she was very happy about it. We're going to have an opportunity one of these days, brethren, to bring happiness to people that never understood that there was really a better way of doing things. Healthy families teach respect for others. These kids running down the streets in England were not taught to respect other people's property. They were not taught to respect other people. Healthy families develop a sense of trust. You know, Jesus sent his apostles out, or disciples out, and he said, I trust you. I want you to go preach and teach and heal. But he trusted them. He entrusted them. And when you give your kids the keys to the car, you've got to trust them if you're going to give them the keys. <laughs> if they want the keys again, they're going to have to prove that they can be trusted. See, these are all values that can be inculcated at home. Healthy families have a sense of humor. They're not all serious all the time. I had some jokes, but I chose not to tell them today because <laughs> I wanted to be more serious about it today. They have a balanced interaction among the members. They share leisure time. You know, one of the things we did with our boys when they were growing up, they were about 10, 11, 12. We lived about a mile from a lake. And I saw an ad in the paper one time for a used canoe. So I told them, I'm going to get a canoe tonight whenever I come home after some visits. Those boys were up staring out the window, actually leaning out the window when I drove into the driveway with this canoe on the car. Yay! Here comes Dad with the canoe. Why did I get a canoe? Because they wanted to send them to summer camp when they got a little bit older. So they learned how to paddle a canoe, and they both went to summer camp and were canoe instructors up there. See, we can, we can cultivate our kids. We can bring them along. We can make life exciting for them. If we share leisure time together and have a plan and a purpose, healthy families teach a, right, a sense of right and wrong. I mean, you tell your kids that's wrong. You don't do it that way. They need to understand that and understand why. These are all things that we can do. You're promoting family rituals and traditions. We had a Friday night dinner every night. My wife would put candles on the table, and it was just... We kind of joked with the kids, dinner will be tonight at 6, and if you're not there, there will be no dinner. But we'd like you to be there. <laughs> but it was a family tradition. These are things that we can promote and teach. But hopefully we'll have some of these things to pass out to you as you leave today, either the, uh, the uh, room here or the building. Why is this important? Let's look at one final scripture. Back to Malachi. Malachi, the fourth chapter, the very end of the Old Testament. Why is this subject important that we've been talking about? You know, we're told in the scriptures. Family is not unimportant. Family is big in God's plan and God's purpose. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 says, Behold, the day is coming. In other words, the day when Jesus Christ returns to this earth and there's going to be a judgment. Drop down to verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Remember the laws of God, the wisdom, the justice, the righteousness of the laws of God, which I commanded you in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And the mission that John the Baptist had was to restore or recapture true values. But this scripture indicates someone is going to come or an organization will come and restore all things before Jesus Christ returns. And one of the things is going to be restored. Verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of parents to children, and the hearts of children to their parents. And that's going to be done lovingly, gently, firmly. And we're going to have an opportunity to do that. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. In other words, unless it's just all lost. God did not conceive a plan to lose. He's going to win. He's going to bring peace to this earth through Jesus Christ. Families are going to be restored. Relationships are going to be rebuilt. And this is our challenge now, you know, to learn to work within our church as a family, to learn to work within our families, to learn to work with each other as brothers and sisters. Because this concept of family is extremely important in the plan of God. Satan is out to destroy and disrupt and thwart that plan. But God is preparing a group of people that he's going to use to restore the family, to restore marriages, and to bring peace to this earth. I see some yellow sheets in the hands of the ushers. So we'll be able to give those to you as you leave.